Hopefully your mouths are full and your stomachs are happy. So your ears are on. That's right, and your ears are on. Yeah, 20 seconds of this. Good. All right. Let's get rolling here. So Obadiah, let's go to Obadiah 1. We're back in the book of Obadiah. And we'll see what kind of pace we can take. I don't know. We may not make it through the whole book in two more, two more sessions. We'll see how fast we can make it. We'll just go at the right rate and cover the truth. Sound good? All right. So Obadiah 1. If you've got your Bibles, look there with me. We're going to read Obadiah 1 through 10. Obadiah 1 through 10. Starts off the vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise, let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made you small among the heathen. You are greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you that dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that says in your heart, in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there will I bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how are you cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of your confederacy have brought you even to the border. The men that were at peace with you have deceived you and prevailed against you. They that eat your bread have laid a wound under you. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And your mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed. To the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. So we've read through this section several times. Remembering the context that the book of Obadiah, it's written by the prophet Obadiah. Um, His name means servant of the Lord. He's writing around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, which was in, anybody remember what year was that? 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar they, and Babylon's armies, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and pillaged it. And the vision of Obadiah is written against the nation of Edom because Edom participated in the destruction wrought by the Babylonians. And if you remember the history... Edom descended from what individual? Remember, Isaac? Uh, That's it. Edom descended from Esau, and who was Israel and Judah? From whom did they descend? From Jacob. And Jacob and Esau were brothers. Remember that? So when, when Judah, when Jacob was being destroyed, Esau, a.k.a. Edom, Instead of participating and destroying their own brother, they should have stood up and been an ally. So we get this oracle against the nation of Edom, but it's also primarily the audience who would have been reading it and listening to this prophecy would have been Obadiah's own countrymen, the refugees who had been left in the land of Israel. Remember that? So we covered verse 1 last week. We covered what it meant that it's a vision. We talked about how it's 
a message from the Lord, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And then we got, we talked about this where Obadiah says, we've heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. And then, so there was apparently probably an angelic messenger dispatched from God to go and to call the nations. And what was the message of this messenger? Arise you. So that message, arise ye, is shorthand for the way Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 49, for arise and let's go against Edom for battle. And then the reply of the nations, let us rise up against her in battle. So that's what we covered in verse 1. And now what we find in verses 2 through 9 is, um, well, let me put up the outline for you. See that? There's our outline. So God's vengeance on Esau, that's this whole first part, verses 2 through 14. We get Edom's sentence, God's sentence for Edom, is destruction. That's verses 1 through, through 9. And then the evidence against Edom, that's verses 10 through 14. So it's interesting. How would we normally want to do it? Do we give the verdict and the sentencing first in a court of law? Or do we have to present evidence and try the individual first? What's normal procedure? Number two, right? you got to give the evidence first, then the jury and the judge render a guilty verdict, and then there's indictment. Well, it also depends on the court system. Like America, it's true. You're innocent. True. So it does depend on the courtroom. But by and large, you're probably going to start with the evidence and then the sentencing. But God flips this. He's saying Edom's destruction is sure. Here's Edom's sentencing, and then he gives us the evidence. And so we're looking specifically at the sentencing tonight, Edom's destruction. And it's written in a way, it's kind of cool. It follows an ABA pattern. Now, if you don't know what I just said, it's okay. Let me explain it. It means he's going to talk about A, about a certain topic. Then he's going to talk about another topic, which we'll call B. But then after he talks about B, he's going to circle back and talk about topic A. So you see it on the screen. A is Esau as the target of divine fury. That's part one. Then he switches and he sees Esau as the victim of the nations. That's verses five through seven. Then he circles back to point A. Esau as target of divine fury. Ezekiel? It's not circular reasoning. It is, uh, no, that's something different. Sorry. We don't have time to cover logic. I'm sorry. You get that in school. You'll have to revisit it next semester. All right, so there's your thought flow. But did you notice there's a few interjections throughout here? Did anyone notice a time where Obadiah just gives an interjection or an exclamation? Something that doesn't fit exactly what he's talking about? Did you notice any of these? You can look at your Bible if you want. There's one in verse 5. Do you see it in verse 5? It's, how are you cut off? Or how are you destroyed? Where he's talking about, if thieves came to you and robbers by night, would they not have stolen till they had enough? But in the middle of his sentence, Obadiah just interjects, 
Well, if robbers were going to come, wow, how are you cut off? How destroyed you are. Interesting. Obadiah kind of has an interesting style where he just gives random interjections, seemingly random interjections, and they capture our attention. James? Yeah, Israel wasn't going to steal, but remember that back in the book of Numbers? We talked about that in our introduction, how Edom would not let Israel go through their land when they were coming out of the Exodus. Yeah. Okay, one more question of observations. Did you notice any word pictures that Obadiah uses in this? And let's define, what is a word picture? Adrian? The word picture is when someone writes something down for for your imagination to see it. Exactly. So it's words that he puts together to help us visualize it. Exactly. It's a picture painted with words. Did you notice any word pictures in here? that he uses to, uh, to illustrate the destruction God is bringing. James? Okay. Verse 4, what do you see there? Yeah, he compares Edom to an eagle. It's good. Any other word pictures you notice? Don't let me take your thunder. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Chacho? Uh, 12 of verse 5, he puts down two. Yeah. With the great gatherer, great people yep. that come to and that they have not left so Yeah, I agree. So verse 5, you see it? There's two word pictures there. Robbers and thieves by night. And then the grape gatherers, the harvesters. Isaac? Uh, That was it. Great minds think alike. All right. So we'll come to a few more as we go. But we're starting out thinking on this sentencing for Esau. Let's start with with the A. Esau as the target of divine fury. Esau as the target of divine fury. Now, we mentioned this um, last week was that Obadiah, he is quoting a large section and alluding to is maybe a better word. He's alluding to a large section in Obadiah. Sorry, Obadiah is alluding to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 49, there is an oracle against several nations from, Jer- from Jeremiah 46 to 51. He's giving oracles of judgment against several nations because of their sin against God. He gives oracles against Egypt, against the Philistines, against Moab, against Ammon, against Edom, against Damascus, Kedar and Hazor, Elam, and against Babylon. And so couched in there is this oracle of judgment against Edom from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah and Obadiah, they would have been contemporaries. Remember that? They're both ministering around the same time period. Jeremiah for a while is in the land as a refugee and then he's taken off to Egypt. Remember that? There's just a little bit of the history. But Obadiah, it lends credibility to his message because he agrees with what Jeremiah is saying. 
We won't, do the time, we won't take the time to go and compare them, but that could be a fun study for you to take the book of Obadiah, open it up, and then maybe open another Bible next to it and look at Jeremiah chapter 49 and see the parallels and how much of the wording Obadiah uses from Jeremiah. It's pretty neat. Um, another thing to remember is this prophecy from Balaam. You remember that story where uh, Balak, remember that? Balak, the king of uh, Moab, he gets scared because Israel's coming. They've just destroyed two very mighty kings, Sihon and Og. And Balak gets scared. And he says, we need to hire someone to curse Israel so that we can defeat them. Remember that? So he hires Balaam. Um, and Balaam comes. He was kind of like a cursor for hire. And he comes. Do you remember? He, they debate, he debates back and forth whether he should even go. And God says, well, you can go, but only speak what I say to you. And then he gets on his donkey and he's in trouble because he shouldn't have gone in the first place. Do you remember what his donkey does? He presses him up against the wall because the donkey sees the angel in the path, but Balaam doesn't see it. And then he strikes the donkey and then Balaam's donkey talks to him. Remember that? And he basically says, hey, I just saved your life. Remember that? Do you remember that story? If not, you should go and read the book of Numbers. There's some really interesting stories in there about how God was at work in early Israel. But long story short, Balaam comes. Do you think that he was able to curse Israel? No. Three times, Balak wants him to curse Israel. But remember, Israel is blessed. God said, I will bless you. And I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So now Moab's in trouble because they cursed. They were trying to curse Israel. But Balaam, at the end of that, he gives a prophecy. He says, there will a star rise out of Jacob and a scepter from Judah, and it will dash. It's going to break. It's going to crush Moab. And at that time, Edom will be dispossessed by Israel. So remember that context. Israel has that in the back of their mind. They know Edom has destruction coming someday when Messiah comes. What, the cursing or the blessing? Well, yeah, it's interesting. We'd have to go back and look at numbers to see is Balaam cursed or is he blessed or is he neutral in this? At least he doesn't curse Israel. He only speaks what the Lord tells him. So that was good. But should he have gone in the first place? Eh, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. All right, one more thing is just notice the structure here in verses 2 through 4. Verses 2 through 4, remember Esau as the target of divine fury. Just notice the structure. This also follows an A-B-A pattern. It's just really cool. If you like literature, this is, this is just really ornate literature. If you don't like literature, it's okay. It's not going to hurt our feelings too much. But it goes from how God is going to humiliate Esau... Then he talks about Esau's present pride in verse 3. And then he's going to talk about God's future humiliation of Esau in verse 4. So it goes from God's going to humiliate Esau. Esau is presently proud. In the future, God is going to humiliate Esau. So now let's look at it. Verse 2. So verse 2, he says, Behold, I have made you small among the heathen. That word heathen, that means nations. I've made you small among the nations. Now, who is talking here? God. God is. Exactly. God through Obadiah. 
Because that's how he started it, back in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. So this is a prophecy via Obadiah, the mouthpiece for God, but it's God speaking. He says, Behold, I have made you small among the nations. I've made you small among the nations. But what's the first word in that verse? Behold. Behold. He starts out with, Behold. Or see, look at this. And that's a word that is often used in the scripture. It's to get our attention. It's to say, hey, look at this. Pay attention to this. It's important. Um, But then he says, I have made you small among the nations. Well, this word small, what's that getting at? What do you think? Any thoughts? This same word is used over in the book of Amos. Now, Amos was written to the northern kingdom of Israel prior to their fall in 722 BC. But they were sinning against God. They were engaged in idolatry and immorality. And God is proclaiming judgment upon them through the prophet Amos back a couple hundred years earlier. 150 plus years earlier. And he says it there. He says, And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech you. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. And God says the same thing. Verse 5. O Lord God, seats, I beseech you. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. In other words, this word, it gets to the idea of this disastrous fate awaiting Edom. Maybe they're, they see themselves as a decently powerful nation. But God is going to crush them. Bring them to their knees. Make them be insignificant among the nations. Does that make sense? In other words, they're going to be defenseless. Have you ever noticed that? How sometimes people, kids who are bigger, like to pick on kids who are smaller. Ever noticed that before? I don't know. It's like we just like to pick fights with people we think we can beat. That's exactly what this is getting at with Edom. God says, I'm going to make you small. I'm going to make you defenseless. I'm going to make you an easy target. He says, behold, I've made you small among the nations. And then he says, you are greatly despised. Despised, that means they're hated, they're detested, they're looked down upon. So Yahweh, God, the one true God of Israel, says because of what Edom has done, we'll get to that in verses 10 through 14, he says, I'm going to humiliate them. I'm going to make you small. I'm going to bring you low. But then, look at verse 3. We go from how God is going to humiliate Esau, now then we see Esau's present pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, who says in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So God identifies the heart of Esau. And it's not a heart of humility. It's a heart of pride. So he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, at first thought, at least what jumps into my mind as I read along, I think, well, why does God bring up Esau's pride here? What do you think? Why might God be bringing up Esau's pride? Any thoughts? Adrian? Okay, they were a prideful nation. Zach? Yeah, because he's going to show him that he's wrong, huh? What we might naturally think is this is the reason that God's bringing destruction against Edom. Now, the verses up there, you can look. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 16, Ezekiel 28, Amos 6. 
um, and Malachi chapter 4. All of those talk about how this sin of pride, it is worthy of condemnation. God doesn't let the proud escape. So those texts show us that. However, the book of Obadiah, he's going to highlight in verses 10 through 14, the crimes of Esau. And it's not pride. Now they were motivated probably by pride. But the pride is not the primary reason God's coming against them with judgment. Instead, what he shows, God says, I'm going to humble you. He says, right now you're proud. You are high and lifted up. He says, the pride of your heart. This means like delusional self-confidence. It's, I think I'm something when I'm not. It's, I have a little bit too much trust in my own abilities. Um, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes shame. In other words, pride, it thinks, wow, I'm really great. I'm better than I really am. But what that actually leads to is shame for the one who's proud. But he says, the pride of your heart. Go ahead, Colton. Sorry? Self-pride. Self-pride. Yeah. Mr. Peter? Yeah, what's fascinating about hubris? Okay. Hubris. Somebody look it up. Tell us next, next week. It'll be fun. Hubris, or on Friday. But this pride, he says it's the pride of your heart. It's the pride of your heart. Um, What's interesting about our heart, what do we typically think of going on in our hearts? Not our physical heart. I mean, we understand that. It pumps blood. But the heart. Zach? Our intent, our will. Uh Our spirit. Okay. Somebody said emotions. Yeah, Elise said emotions. Often, at least our 21st century American culture, we tend to think of your heart as the seat of your emotions, your feelings. Where do we feel? It's in our hearts. It's like Valentine's Day. None of you guys get too sappy around Valentine's Day, right? Ah, nasty. But he says the pride of your heart. Mia? There we go. Hubris. What's interesting about the heart according to scripture, it's not just the seat of our feelings or our emotions, but it's also where we think. So I won't derail us, but remember, what's the greatest commandment? To, yeah, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But He says that in Deuteronomy 6, but then when Jesus talks about it to a Greek-speaking audience where there's more Hellenization, more Western influence like what we have, he says your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, what your heart is according to Scripture is it's not just where you feel, but it's also where you think. And we see this at the end of the verse that says in his heart, who will bring me down to the ground? In other words, where is Esau thinking? It's in his heart. It's where he talks to himself. He thinks. But the pride of your heart has deceived you. Um, this word deceive, 
It's actually used back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. What's going on there? Anybody remember Genesis 3? God said, don't eat of something. Adam and Eve, they eat of something. Remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? But Eve tells God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What this word gets at is it, it's, it's the idea of it gives false hope. That's how the serpent deceived Eve. He gave her false hope. He said, this fruit's going to make you wise. This fruit's going to make you like God. And Eve believed him. She had false hope. Did the fruit make her wise and make her like God? No, not at all the way Satan said it would. That's what he's saying here. Esau's pride gives him false hope. Esau thinks, I'm great. I'm mighty. No one can defeat me. It's false hope. He says, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock. He gives two descriptions of Esau's pride. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation's high. And then he says, the one who says in his heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So, I've got a map up here. Can you see that little red X? That's where we're talking about. That's in the land of Edom. That little red X is around where um, it's thought that the town of Selah was. This word rock in Hebrew is the word Selah. So it can be used as a, um, a, a non-proper noun. What's that called? A general noun? I don't remember. A common noun. Thank you. It can be used as a common noun to mean rock, but it could also be used in a, as a proper noun to refer to this city. Let me show you a picture of this city, where it is. That's Selah. You get it? You who make your habitation up in the rocks. Here's another. This one is a picture of Petra. Petra, some people identify Selah and Petra as the same city. Others think it's a little bit south. Either way, you kind of get the picture. It's a place of massive potential. It's very defensible because they're up high. They live in the rocks. They consider their dwelling safe. I mean, imagine that. When all you had was sticks and stones and swords to fight, that's a pretty impenetrable place to live. And to get to Petra, there's one way in and one way out. And it's through a narrow tunnel between two rocks. It's cool. It's really cool. I couldn't find a picture um, that I was allowed to present, so I didn't put one up. But it's really cool. You should Google Petra later and the sick that leads into Petra. Chacho? Uh, that seems like a little small place. Yeah. That made me think, it might be safe, but one little blow of wind, you're blown, you're going to be blown off the cliff. Fair enough. And blows you away. Yeah. Nathan? What do you mean by, like, couldn't show? Do you, like, have to cite your sources? Correct. There are copyright laws, and I try to follow them. So I couldn't find one that I could properly attribute, so I didn't put one up. I'm sorry. But you can Google it. So he says, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? This is Esau's challenge. Esau says in his own heart, he thinks, who's going to bring me down to the ground? Do you see this challenge he issues? He's like, I dare you to try it. Somebody defeat me. Can you see their arrogance? This is the pride of Esau. Then in verse 4, we return to God's humiliation of Esau. And God, he, he gives some metaphors, some word pictures, to describe the destruction that God's going to bring. He says, Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I'm going to bring you down. So, 
though you set, exalt yourself as the eagle. And this word eagle, it can either be translated like eagle or vulture. It's a bird of prey is kind of the point. So here are um, some vultures up on a cliff in India. This is kind of what God has in mind, we think, with this word picture. It's some ugly bird, but they dwell way up high in the cliffs where they're safe, where they can observe the landscape. What? <laughs> but get the, get the picture, you guys. First, hold on, bring it back. First, he says, though you, though you exalt yourself as the eagle or like the vultures, you dwell up high in the cliffs. But then God uses some hyperbole. He says, and though you set your nest among the stars, what kind of bird sets their nest in the stars? God is using hyperbole to make the point. Esau, you are exalting yourself as high as you possibly can. It's as if you think that you are the one who created the universe, the one who dwells in space and is in control of everything. God says, no matter where you hide, no matter how strong you think you are, he says, from there, I will bring you down. From there, I will bring you down, says the Lord. Um, you could cross-reference Amos chapter 9, verse 2. Um, it says something very similar to this, speaking of Israel. Though they dig into hell, from there will my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So kind of the picture that these word pictures is painting in our minds, the visual, is no one can escape the judgment of God. The judgment of God is inescapable. I'd like to make some application for just a minute. Um, if you've got your Bibles, let's go over to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 18. Oh, sorry, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, Proverbs chapter 16. Yeah, Proverbs chapter 16. We're looking at verse 18. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So get the picture, y'all. This is practical because, of course, Edom, they were arrogant. They were self-absorbed. They had a delusional self-confidence. And so they were, they, they were getting this oracle of judgment from God that destruction is coming. But realize, God takes pride seriously. God takes pride seriously. And so my question for you guys, do you see any parallels between your own heart and Esau's heart? Esau says in his heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Do you see any parallels in your own life of areas where maybe you say, and this is rhetorical, you don't have to answer this or give an example, just think about it. But do you see an example in your own life where you think too highly of yourself? You think of yourself as more important than the people around you. The book of Philippians, you could go and look at this, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Paul says, Look not every person on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Um, 
he says, let each person esteem others as better or more important than themselves. And then he proceeds to give the perfect example of humility. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, God's own son, deserves all glory. And yet he took on human flesh. Think of how humbling that was for Jesus to go from splendor and light and glory in heaven to human flesh. We're not the most glorious of creatures, if you haven't noticed. But then Jesus not only humbled himself by becoming a man, but he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for our sins. And so that's the message of the gospel, is that Jesus, the Son of God who deserves our glory, died in the place, he humbled himself and died in our place. He died for proud people so that we could receive grace. So I want to warn you, first of all, if you're living your life as a proud person, arrogant and puffed up, you're on the path to destruction. If you have a haughty or a boastful spirit, that kind of spirit goes before a fall. It's a dangerous path to travel. But James chapter 4 verse 6 says, but God gives more grace. Wherefore he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the invitation to us is to humble ourselves and to receive the grace of God. First of all, for salvation from all of our sins. But then even if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, we ought to be the humblest of people of all. Because we realize how wicked we are, and yet God still loves us, and Christ still died for us, and purged us from our sins. That's where this book gets practical, because Edom is facing impending destruction because of their pride and their participation in the destruction of Jerusalem. But what about us? Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. All right, any further comments there as we finish this out for tonight? All right, well, let's close in prayer, shall we?